0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I know we just turned the calendar page to the month of March. And isn't that crazy? It's like really hard to believe. And it's already March. And, uh, and that means that uh, here in just a couple of weeks, the official start of spring is going to begin. And I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of that word spring. I'm sure maybe for some people you think about you know the green grass beginning to grow again and flowers, uh, in bloom and all of that. Maybe for some, uh, you think about how it's warming up and now you're able to get back in the pool and uh, maybe get back to the the beach. I, I know maybe for some of our students uh, listening today, you're thinking about spring break. That's what comes into your mind and and that's just in a week or so, a little break uh, from school. Maybe maybe for some, when you think of spring, you think about Easter, right? The most spiritual in here. That's what you think about, right? Easter and and, and so I don't know what it is, you know, for you. It, it probably. Didn't Differs for each of us. You know, what comes into our mind when we think of spring. But you know, a question that's a, a lot more important than what comes into our mind when we think of spring is this question uh, What comes into your mind when you think about God? A.W. You know, Tozer, in the first line of his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's exactly right. There's nothing more important than what a person, than what any of us thinks about God. But oftentimes, I'm afraid that our view of God is incorrect. That our view of God has been skewed, it has been distorted in some way, perhaps because of the influence of, Uh, Of our world. We we base our view of God on what our world says to us about God. Sometimes it's skewed just based on our own uh, desires of of what we like to think that God is rather than basing our view of God on what he says about himself in his word. And yet, sometimes I I believe we can even read God's word and and struggle about some of the things that we read in it and, and what it says to us about God. Sometimes we have trouble processing that. We have trouble lining that up with with, with what we previously believed about God or what we've read elsewhere in his word. And we're going to talk about some of that today. We're going to talk about who our great God really is. And and my prayer uh, for us as the people of God in in this place, in this little corner of God's kingdom, is that uh, we would not worship a God of our own making. But instead, we would worship the God who is really there. The God who has revealed himself to us in his word. The God who is the sovereign king over all. Because he is great, church. And he is worthy today of all of our worship and all of our praise. We're going to pick up the pace today in our study of the book of Joshua. We're looking at three chapters, surveying Joshua 10, 11, And 12. And really, outside of a couple of battles that we've read about so far, these three chapters really contain the majority of Israel's conquest of the promised land. Next week when we come to Joshua 13, we're going to turn the corner and, and begin looking at the inheritance of the land and how each of the tribes received their allotment of land. But, but today we're looking at how God gave his people the land, how he gave them the victory and fulfilled his promise to them. But when we talk about these victories that Israel won, I I don't want us to just focus on the victories themselves. I I want us today to focus on what these victories teach us about who God is. And I want us to see as we walk through this story, three characteristics, three attributes of who our great God is. The first thing I think we see is that the victories that God gave his people here in Joshua teach us that God is all-powerful that our God is a wonder-working God. And certainly you can see that in the first half of Joshua chapter 10. Now verse 1 of Joshua 10 introduces us to a man named Adonai Zedek, who is the king of the city of Jerusalem. Now uh, just kind of a little historical note here, this is actually the first place in the Bible where the city of Jerusalem shows up. Uh, at least by this name. Uh, At this point, of course, it is a Canaanite-controlled city, and the king of the city of Jerusalem is afraid. He's afraid because of what he's heard uh, about what Joshua has done. He's also afraid, it says, because of what he's heard about what the city of Gibeon done, this this powerful city that instead of of trying to fight back against Israel, went and made a treaty, a covenant with them, instead, as we saw last week. And so uh, he is none too pleased with the Gibeonites about doing that. And so he calls for four of his buddies, four other kings, and they form this coalition of kings from the southern part of Canaan. And they decide to attack the city of Gibeon to kind of win that city back for their side. And so the Gibeonites look out from their city walls and they see this coalition of five kings and armies from these cities. And Uh, They decide, uh, even though the ink was hardly dry at this point on the covenant they had signed with the Israelites, uh, they said, you know what, it's time uh, to call on that covenant. And so they send up the signal flare and they call out for help to the Israelites and to Joshua. They say, hurry, come quickly and, and help us. To his credit, Joshua does not renege on that covenant, but he sees it as an opportunity. And it was an opportunity that God had given in his sovereignty to not defeat these kings one at a time, but to defeat all five of these kings at the same time. So Joshua musters his army. I love what the Lord said in verse eight. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have delivered them into your hand. <clears throat> not a man of them shall stand before you. Now, the Lord is so gracious to Joshua here to reassure him, even in spite of Joshua's mistakes. Even his mistakes in particular with the Gibeonites, the Lord still reassures him and says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you the victory. Uh, In fact, he he says, I have given them, past tense, into your hand. In other words, the outcome of the battle has already been determined. Joshua, all you need to do is go up and fight. And so Joshua marches all night long with his army and shows up at, at Gibeon at the battlefield, probably just at the breaking of dawn. And Verse 10 tells us what happened. The Lord routed them. As some translations say, the Lord threw them into a panic. And so they begin to flee. And and the battle moves to the west across the plain. And it ends up spanning about 30 miles as this battle continues on and on. And, And this is where we read about the first miracle that God worked that day as he gave his people the victory. You see it in verse 11. And it happened as they fled before Israel and we're on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. You know, the book of Job speaks about hail uh, being like ammunitions in God's storehouse. And here he is clearly unloading that ammunition, certainly the timing of this hailstorm was miraculous. What was even more miraculous than that is that these giant hailstones that were falling out of the sky uh, only fell on the Canaanites and they did not fall on the Israelites. Now I'll just say if you put yourself in the place of the Canaanites and you are running for your life and giant hailstones are falling out of heaven and falling on your head and not on the people five feet behind you, at that point you can kind of know you're not going to win that battle. Right, you clearly are on the wrong side of this battle, and the text says more of the soldiers died from the hail than from the swords. This is a clear indication that in this battle, the Lord is, is the divine warrior who is fighting for uh, his people. A second miracle of this day, and it is the last miracle that's recorded in the book of Joshua, Most probably the greatest miracle that's recorded in the book of Joshua. That's what happened in verses 12 through 14, where Joshua sees the enemy running away, but he also sees that his daylight hours are running away. And he doesn't have enough time to pursue the enemy and, and to chase them down. And so he prays. And he asked God for the sun and the moon to stand still, that God would lengthen the day and give him more time to be able to pursue the enemy. And amazingly, God says yes to his prayer. And God extends the day. It says he added an extra day or so of daylight. Verse 14 says, there was never another day like it, before it or after it. And there's been a lot of debate about what actually happened on this day. There's lots of different views on it. Uh, some people say, well, you know, this is just poetic language. The day wasn't actually any longer, but uh, it just maybe felt like it was longer. Some people say, uh, really, this was just a request to, to lessen the intensity of the sun's heat so that the soldiers would be able to fight uh, longer and, and more ably. Uh, some people said what he was asking for was really an eclipse of the sun and people try to line up different eclipses that happened in history and line it up with this exact date. But, but my view is that none of those views actually do justice to what the text says. Uh, the text says the day was longer and that there was never another day like it. And I believe that that's exactly what happened, that the Lord lengthened this day. Now, how did the Lord do that? Well, well frankly, I have no idea how the Lord did that. Uh, Did he stop the earth somehow from rotating on its axis? Did he somehow change the angle of the sun so that like it is in certain places on the globe, like in Alaska in the summer, for example, where the sun uh, almost never sets, that it was like that somehow in the middle of the Holy Land? Uh, I don't know how the Lord did that, but I I do believe this. You know, if we as human beings have figured out a way to change our clocks and add an hour to the daylight, which we're about to do next weekend with daylight, savings time, uh, then I believe the God who created the daylight, uh, the God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth can figure out a way to add 24 hours to the day if he wants to do that. And you know, I I believe as Christians, we really should have no trouble in believing this. We already believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, who spoke it into being. Well, we believe in a God who resurrected his son Jesus from the dead. And so, what in comparison to that is the sun standing still? What in comparison to that is a floating axe head? You know, Christians should have no problem believing in miracles because we believe that we are alive because of the miracle of creation and we are spiritually alive because of the miracle of the resurrection. He is a miracle-working God. He is a big God. I came across a story this week of, of the great preacher Donald Barnhouse. He was invited to come back and preach at Princeton Seminary after he had graduated about 12 years prior. And when he got up to preach, he looked down and noticed his old Hebrew professor was sitting there right towards the front listening to him preach, a man named Dr. Robert Wilson And when the sermon was over, Dr. Wilson came up to Dr. Barnhouse and he he said uh, to him, if you come back to preach at Princeton again, uh, I will not come back to hear you. I only come once, but I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I will know what their ministry will be. And Dr. Barnhouse asked his Hebrew professor to explain further, and he said this, quote, well, some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures and their preservation and transmission to us. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. And then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on those that fear him. You have a great God and he will bless your ministry. And Wilson was right. Barnhouse did have a big God and God did bless his ministry tremendously. But you know, all of us should be big Godders, shouldn't we? All of us should believe in a big, great miracle working God because that's who our God is. He can bring down the hail when he wants to, He can stop the sun in its tracks when he wants to because he is a miracle working God. And because he is, he can also work miracles in your life and in my life. And the greatest miracles that he works in our lives are the miracles that he works in our hearts the miracle of salvation, the miracle of forgiveness. The miracle of reconciliation between us and between others. Christian, let's believe in a big miracle-working God. And, and let's believe that he is a miracle-working God enough to pray. And, and not just to pray little wimpy prayers, but, but to pray big prayers. To pray the kind of prayers that Joshua prays here in this story. But let's believe in him enough to Witness. Believe in him enough to to not believe the lie that, well, when I share about, about the Lord, nobody's gonna wanna hear it and nothing is ever gonna come of that. But to believe, no, when we're faithful to go out and scatter seed, he's gonna use that. and Some of it's gonna fall on good soil and some people are gonna come to know the Lord just like that seed fell on our heart when we first heard it. To believe enough to always have hope. I know we live in a world where there isn't a lot of hope right now. There's a lot of negative Nellies out there. Christians should not be so, because we know who our great God is. We know what he can do. We know what he has promised, and we know he will keep every promise that he has made. The story of Israel's victory in Canaan certainly teaches us this much. It teaches us that we have an all-powerful God, a wonder-working God. It also teaches us, number two, that our God is just, that he is a righteous warrior. And we've looked at the first half of Joshua, 15, or Joshua 10, starting in verse 16 of chapter 10, and all the way to the end of the chapter, we read the rest of the story of, uh, of Joshua's southern military conquest. We read about these five kings who tried to hide themselves in a cave after they had been defeated. Joshua rolled stones in front of the cave and turned their hiding place into a holding cell until they could finish the rest of the battle. Then they came back and brought the kings out. And in verse 24, we read that Joshua had the kings lie down on the ground, and he had his captains symbolically put their feet on the necks of those five kings. Now that was a customary thing that was done in the ancient Near East at that time. But but it also, in in this case, was, was done for the encouragement of the people of God. So that they would understand that in the same way that God had defeated these five kings, he would defeat all the rest of their enemies. That's what Joshua said to them. If you look at verse 25, he said, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua then killed those kings, hung their bodies on trees until sundown, as he had done with the king of Ai. Ai. took them down and threw them in the cave and put those stones back in place and made a monument there to the victory that God had given them. In verses 28 through 39, the storyteller picks up the pace, tells how Joshua took the battle city by city. Some of the cities you read about were the same ones from these five kings. Some were other cities that were located nearby. When we turn the page to chapter 11, Uh, where the battle is moving from the southern part of Canaan now to the northern part of Canaan. And in the same way as there was one instigator in chapter 10, the king of Jerusalem, who rallied a coalition, in chapter 11 there's a different instigator who does the same thing, Jabin, king of a city called Hazor. now Hazor was the dominant city in the northern part of Canaan. It it stretched across a 200-acre plot of land. And so Jabin uh, hears about what Joshua has done in the central part of Canaan, in the southern part of Canaan. He says, It's time to fight back. And so he rallies together other kings from all over the land, and they form a huge army. Verse 4 of chapter 11, in colorful language, describes how big that army was. It says, So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. So in this battle, Israel was outmatched. They were going up against an enemy that had far more soldiers. They were going up against an enemy that was more technologically advanced, that had horses and chariots, things that they did not have. And yet in verse six, the Lord encourages Joshua again, tells him by this time tomorrow, you're going to win the victory. I want you to burn the chariots. I want you to hamstring the horses so that they cannot be used in battle anymore. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 7, Joshua and the army of Israel come upon the enemy suddenly. Joshua uh, wins the battle. As the Lord gives him the victory, he carries out all the Lord's instructions. We read about how he comes back and burns the city of Hazor, although it's pointed out that that was the only city in the northern part of Canaan that he burned down. The rest of them he left remaining. The Israelites lived in those cities, and that was a fulfillment of what God said would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter six. God said, when I give you the promised land, you're gonna live in cities that you have not built, and you're gonna eat from vineyards that you have not planted. You know, we read these couple chapters, and it's, the story is told to us in such a succinct manner. You can almost think that this just happened overnight. Uh, as one person put it, though, this was not the work of, of one long summer. It says in verse 18 that this took a long time. Most scholars believe it took about seven years of conquest, seven years of going out and fighting these battles before they were able to subdue the land. I love how verse 21 and 22 uh, speaks about Joshua driving out the Anakim. The Anakim were the giants of the land. And you might remember that it was these giants in the land that caused 10 of the 12 spies 40 years earlier to think that they were not able to defeat them and to win the land. And yet we see here that under Joshua, these giants are no match for the power Of the Lord God. And he drives them out of the land. It says, there's a little note, it says the only place that the giants remain was in the Philistine cities like Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. And I'm sure we can all remember the name of one particular giant who shows up later in the Bible who happened to come from one of these Philistine cities, the city of Gath, a giant by the name of Goliath. Again, while there's still more work to be done, verse 23 of Joshua 11 is a summary verse about how the Lord had given him the whole land. Look at that with me. It says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Those words rest and inheritance that you see in that verse, those are important biblical words. And we're gonna come back to those words next week when we talk about how the Israelites received their inheritance in this place of rest, this land of promise that God had given to them. You know, I said a moment ago that one of the qualities about God that we can see in these chapters of Joshua is that God is just. But you know, that's actually the very quality about God that many people question when they read these chapters in the Bible. Because admittedly, these chapters in the Bible contain a lot of verses that are very hard. They're very difficult for us to read. Over and over in these chapters, we read about the children of God at God's command, striking down and killing all the inhabitants of these cities. Look at chapter 11, verse 11 as just one of many examples of that. It says, "...and they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire." And it's not that God wanted them to be more merciful and Joshua and the Israelites were overzealous and carrying out the Lord's command. No, over and over it says they were doing exactly as the Lord had commanded them. You see that, for example, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 11, says there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord. To harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So, in a way that's similar to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we read about in the Exodus, it says here that God hardened their hearts so that they would fight because it was the Lord's will to judge them and ultimately to destroy them on the battlefield. You know, this is something that I believe many believers wrestle with. Uh, It's something that I personally had to wrestle with in my time of reading and studying the Scriptures. It's also certainly something that unbelievers and skeptics will use as an argument to try to attack the faith of Christians. And they will say something like this, and perhaps you've heard something like this before. They'll say, you know, we've all read about the atrocities of uh, of recent examples of ethnic cleansing and, and uh, genocide. We've all read about Cambodia. We've read about Rwanda. we read about Bosnia. And, and they will say to us, they will say, you know, well, your God uh, is no better. Uh, look at what he did to the innocent people who lived in Canaan in the book of Joshua. And, and so what can we say in response to that? Uh, what can we say even to our own hearts when we read these verses and honestly, we are troubled by them. I know it would be easier just to skip over this part of the book of Joshua, but I don't really feel that would serve us well. Because I believe we have a God who is big enough for even the hardest and the toughest questions that we face. And so I want to just give us very quickly seven or eight responses to these questions. I don't claim that, you know, these responses, you know, are going to take away all of our questions and all of our troubles, but but perhaps they will help just to begin to give us a a roadmap, a biblical roadmap, as we seek to follow a biblical answer to these questions. First of all, as we think about the basic question, was what God did to the Canaanites just? One thing that we have to say very clearly at the outset is this— God does not have to conform to our standards. God is the standard of all that is just and all that is right. Now, I know that I'm not saying that it's wrong to think deeply about these questions and to think about how God's actions here are just, but I I would just say this, that this whole line of questioning is a line of questioning that more or less puts God on trial. It puts God on the witness stand where we sit in judgment over him and we say, you know what, I'm going to read what you've done and I'm going to make sure that that lines up with what I think is right and I think is holy and I think is just. You have to conform to my standards of rightness when the reality is that whole line of thinking is fundamentally flawed because we are not the basis of what is right and just and holy. He is. In Deuteronomy 32, we read this, he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Here's a second fundamental truth we need to remember in this conversation, God does not owe, I know this is hard for us to hear, but God does not owe rebellious sinners anything but judgment he made us and he has the right to judge any of us at any time. I know we like to think that that we are all owed certain things by everyone, that we have these rights and, and even God owes us certain things. The Bible says otherwise. The Bible says God made us and we are the ones who have rebelled against God We are the ones who have essentially declared war on God. And because of that, we are condemned. Because of that, we deserve death. We deserve judgment. And we deserve it now. And so as we read this this story and we understand that we all deserve to receive exactly what the Canaanites received, perhaps the question we should ask is not, why did this happen to them? The question we should ask is, why has this not happened to me? Because we deserve that. Why why has God not judged me in this way and the only answer to that is grace? It's his grace and his mercy that we don't receive today the exact thing that the Canaanites received on that day. Here's another uh, truth that's so important to remember. God was not pushing out, quote, innocent people in order to give his people the land. He was judging a wicked group of people after he gave them 500 years to repent. One of the arguments that you will hear is, you know, well, God just wanted to give his people the land. So he just drove these other people out without even giving a second thought to it. That's not at all how the Bible portrays this. In fact, Moses said the exact opposite in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He told his people that it really what God did to the Canaanites was not so much about the Israelites. It was about the Canaanites. And this is what Moses said. Do not think in your heart after the Lord God has cast them, the Canaanites, out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac. Isaac, and Jacob. Elsewhere, in Deuteronomy 18, for example, God talks about the great wickedness of the Canaanites how they would even sacrifice their own children in the fire in the worship of their false gods. That's why it says in Leviticus 18 that the land was literally vomiting the Canaanites out of the land because of their great sinfulness and iniquity. And 500 years earlier in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is standing on this same soil, the land of Canaan. And God says to him, I'm going to give your descendants this land. But then God said to Abraham, but I'm not going to do it now. I'm not going to do it for hundreds of years. Because the sin of the people who live in that land is not yet full. Well, 500 years later, their sin was full. And 500 years later, the time for their judgment had come. We also need to be clear on this, despite what unbelievers might say, despite what skeptics might say, this is not an example of ethnic cleansing or modern day genocide. It is the judgment of the sovereign God of the universe, and it is in a completely different category altogether. First of all, it certainly was not ethnic cleansing because this was not about ethnicity. This was about immorality. And there are stories that we have read in the book of Joshua that tell us that when there is someone like Rahab who was a Canaanite woman or the Gibeonites who were Canaanite people who believed in God and came to God in faith rather than receiving judgment, they received mercy. Rather than receiving condemnation and destruction, they received salvation. And apparently that way was open to any other Canaanites who would have taken it. And yet, sadly, the majority chose not to. But just in general, we make a mistake when we apply human categories of warfare to what the Lord God of the universe is doing here. That this was not just human warfare. That this is God exercising his judgment on a group of people. And he can use whatever means he wants to use. He can use hailstones. He can use floods. In this case, he used the army of his people. But he can use whatever means he wants to execute his judgment because he is the sovereign Lord. I would also say this, number five, if we would take offense to this act of judgment, then we must also take offense to the greater judgments of the Bible that show up before this and show up after this. And there's at least one story of judgment that shows up before this that was even more widespread than this, and that is what happened in the great flood in the book of Genesis. You think about it, on the day of the great flood, every person alive on the face of the planet died in the waters of that flood except for one family of eight people who went on board the ark of their salvation. And then we read about a story of worldwide judgment that's going to come later in the future. And we read about it in the book of Revelation. And so when we read a story like this, God is preparing our hearts for that day of judgment which will come. And so I would say to us that rather than sitting in judgment on God, we should remember that one day we will all stand in judgment before God. And I think we would do better to tremble and bow our knee than to wag our finger. Number six, we cannot forget that what we're reading about here is not an isolated event, but rather this is ultimately a part of God's salvation story. He was preserving a group of people through whom the Savior of all people was going to come. And so as we continue reading the Bible, we see that that is the case. He is establishing his chosen people in the land of promise. And it is through that chosen people in this particular land, in the city of Bethlehem, that the savior of the world would be born. And it's because of his birth and his death and his resurrection that one day there will be someone from every tribe and every tongue around the throne worshiping God in heaven. And then I would say this, in any discussion of difficult ethical issues, we must always go to the cross. Because as we keep reading our Bibles and as we come to the New Testament, it is the cross where we see God's character most clearly. It is at the cross that we see that God is perfectly just but also passionately gracious. It is as we look at the cross and we see the Son of God hanging there for our sins that we realize how seriously God really does take our sins. You know, sometimes we think so little of sin. We think that sin is no big deal. But I agree with what one person said. He said, you know, we arrogantly fancy ourselves kinder than God when we read the story of Joshua. But when we think that way, he says, quote, That just shows we haven't a clue about what holiness is. Sin was so serious that it cost the blood of the eternal Son of God in order to pay for our sin. And so as we look at the cross, we see God's justice, that every sin must be paid for. But we also see when we look at the cross how incredibly loving our God is. That he would send his only son to die for us, to die in our place, to pay the penalty that our sins d- deserve so that we could be forgiven and we could receive mercy and grace. You know, lastly on this subject, on the, on the question of God's justice and the conquest of Canaan, I, I would just remind us of this. You know, it is okay, in spite of everything that we've said, it is okay to still have questions. It's okay to not understand everything in the Bible fully in this life. You know, we read in the Bible that the revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord. In Psalm 131, it seems like the psalmist was wrestling with that as well. He said, there's certain things that are too difficult for me to understand, certain things that I can't get my head around. And he said, what I had to do is I had to wean my soul like a little child sitting in his mother's lap. And we have to do that. We have to crawl up into the lap of God and rest our soul in him and say, be still and know that I am the Lord. Because we have seen enough of the goodness of God. We've seen enough of his goodness in his word and in our lives and at the cross that the questions that we have about him, we've seen enough of his goodness to trust him with those things and to wait until he explains those things to us in full. I've always loved this verse that that happens when Abraham is talking with God right outside the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and he makes this statement to God and it's a statement that we all should be able to make to God and we know the answer to this question is yes. What Abraham says to God is this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And yes, he will. And church, one day we will see that even far more clearly than we can see it today. We've seen that this story teaches us that God is all-powerful, that God is just, but finally, very quickly, we also see that God is faithful, that God is a covenant keeper. And when we turn to Joshua chapter 12, we read about all of these kings. And in fact, in Joshua 12, you read about 33 kings altogether. Two kings that Moses had defeated on the east side of the Jordan River and 31 kings, all of whose names are given to us, that Joshua defeated on the west side of the Jordan River. There's kings we read about that we've seen in the preceding chapters and basically they're given to us in the same order that we've read about them. There's also some new names that are inserted here which just reminds us what we're reading here is not an exhaustive history. It's a selected history. It gives us what we need to know about the Lord. But I know as you scan down through all of those names, it can feel a little tedious, you know, to read all of those names. Like you look in verses 9 and following, it says the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. <laughs> the king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. But you know, each one of those kings is a testament to the faithfulness of God. Each one of those kings defeated was an answer to prayer, and each one of them was God fulfilling the promise that he had given to Abraham. I mentioned it in Genesis 15 or Genesis 12. Genesis 12, where the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said these words to Abraham. He said, to your descendants I will give this land. And that's exactly what he had just done. He had fulfilled that promise after 500 years because God is faithful. And Christian, hasn't God been good and faithful to you? Hasn't he been good and faithful in your life? He's been faithful because he is faithful. He's been good because he is good. He's been just and holy and loving and merciful and gracious because he is all of those things. That, That is just God being who our God is. You know, as I was thinking about the scene that we read earlier, where Joshua puts his his captain's feet on the necks of those five defeated kings. You know, I was just reminded of the fact that that really just is a foreshadowing of a far greater victory that was to come. Because we keep reading in our Bibles, we read about another king who would win a victory for us that we could not win on our own. And at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And so right now, Satan is a defeated foe. And so if you think about it, really right now in this age, while we wait for the Lord's return, you can just visualize it as though Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has his foot on Satan's neck. And what we read in the Bible, what Paul said in Romans is that one day God will crush Satan underneath his feet. His foot is on his neck right now. And one day the crushing is going to happen. And it's a victory that God won for us at the cross. And when I think about that day at the cross, you know, it's almost the opposite of the day that we read about in Gibeon where, where the sun, you know, it's kind of like it never set. Or there's just this strange light that just continued on way past when it should have. The cross was the opposite of that. You remember there was a strange darkness that came over the land for three hours while Jesus hung on the cross. And yet because Jesus went through that darkness, because Jesus fought that battle and paid for our sin, he's able to invite us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And he's able to usher in for us a day that will never end an eternal sunshine where we walk with the king of kings and i want to invite you friend to receive that if you're here today and you would say you know i I haven't ever really fully trusted in jesus i don't feel like i've ever given my life completely to him i want to invite you to do that to come to him god loves you he's already paid for your sin at the cross he invites you to come and receive mercy receive forgiveness And so I want to ask you to stand as we sing and as we worship. And if that's you, come and share that with any of the pastors that you see here at the front. Just simply say, I want to receive that gift of life. I want to live in the Son through a relationship with Jesus. You come as we sing.